Hello, and welcome to the very first edition of the Necromancers of the Northwest podcast. My name is Alex Riggs, and joining me is Joshua Zabak. Hello. Besides being entertaining, our goal with this podcast is to provide the sorts of commentary and editorial content that articles like Dark Designs and Grave Plots used to provide under our former article schedule. As a company that focuses primarily on 3.5 OGL and Pathfinder systems, most of our podcast will fall into those lines, but we're also going to do our best to be open for other systems as well, and in fact, a lot of what we'll be talking about today and in future podcasts won't be system-specific. Um, our big topic today will be is going to be taking a look at the design process involved in the creation of the book Advanced Arcana 2, which we recently released, but that's going to be coming a little bit later. Right now, we're going to do something that we haven't really done much of here at Necromancers of the Northwest. We're reviewing something. You might think we're doing this because we're trying to come up with something useful and entertaining that we could do in a podcast we've never had time for in our old lineup. But the real reason is that after seeing so many reviews of our own products, we decided we want to see the one done right. <clears throat> in all seriousness, in all seriousness, though, today we're going to review the Brinewall Legacy, the first adventure in the current Pathfinder adventure path, the Jade Regent adventure path. For those of you who haven't had the pleasure of experiencing them firsthand, Paizo Adventure Paths are a series of six or so pre-made adventures which tie into one larger plot and take characters from level 1 all the way up to high levels, like 15, 16, or sometimes as high as level 20. Paizo is the company that used to create Dungeon and Dragon magazines before they became part of the D&D Insider program, and so this is a company whose name is really synonymous with quality adventures. If, if anything, their reputation for quality adventures has only increased since the move to the Pathfinder system. But does the Brinewall legacy live up to the proud standards set by Paizo Adventures? In a word, almost. Before we go into details, though, let me warn you that this is likely going to contain a few spoilers about the adventure, so if you think you'll be playing the Brinewall legacy in the near future rather than DMing it, you might want to skip 10 or 15 minutes ahead in the podcast. Sorry. In the Brinewall legacy, the players explore the Brinestump Marsh to deal with goblins and wind up stumbling upon a secret conspiracy that, as the adventure path unfolds, will take them across the world and force them to confront great foes and live up to a mighty destiny. The adventure path as a whole seems to draw heavily on themes of Asian fantasy and, in fact, revolves around a plot to steal the Jade Throne of the Tian Empire and has strong themes of destiny. In addition to the adventure itself, the book contains a section describing areas of interest from the Sandpoint Hinterlands, the region that the adventure is set in, a few pages discussing the ecology of the Oni, as viewed in the Pathfinder campaign setting, a tangentially related short story, and a brief bestiary section listing six new monsters. There are a few issues with the book, however. The first one that comes to my mind is a heavy reliance on content from the bestiary 2, uh, and to a lesser extent, other books. Um, no less than eight encounters in the adventure require that you have access to the Bestiary 2 or information from the Bestiary 2, uh, as they require that you fight monsters from that book, but do not provide any stat blocks or information about how that encounter could be run, leaving the DM up to find the information for himself. Luckily, um, this may not have been entirely an oversight on Paizo's part. Most of that content can be found for free online and without pirating the Bestiary 2, but it still feels like a, a large oversight on the part of Paizo, and it feels somewhat inconsiderate. Um, that's not the only thing that the book expects players and GMs to be familiar with, however, as the adventure is set in the same place as a previous adventure from the first Pathfinder Adventure Path, Burnt Offerings, and in multiple places the book refers the GM to find more information in that adventure, such as on the town the adventure begins in, and several of the surrounding locations, leaving the adventure feeling somewhat unfinished, even if it's true that the adventure doesn't really take place in the town itself. 
Perhaps the worst self-reference of the adventure is Ameko Kaijitsu, a friendly PC who actually serves as the core of the adventure path, as she is secretly the heir to the Jade Throne, and the entire adventure path revolves around the PCs helping her to attain her birthright. Uh, In the opening of the book, the forward out-and-out states that Ameko is, in fact, a previous PC of one of the writers, and this kind of shows in a few places. Um, it's one thing, I think, for you to make your own DM PC when you want to run a game at home, especially because as a DM you may not get the opportunity to play all the time. When you're a professional adventure writer, care should be taken that your NPCs don't steal the PC's spotlight, and I'm not sure that enough care was given in that case, especially because while the book does give some cursory information on how you can ensure that your PCs have any desire to work with her, uh, and a little bit of information on making the game work with such heavy DMPC involvement, when you get right down to it, most of their advice boils down to, hopefully your PCs will play along. The first part of the adventure, which takes place in the Brine Stump Swamp, as I said before, feels a little bit rushed and a bit neglected. The few items of interest here don't feel fleshed out enough to truly reach their potential, and the rest are either uninteresting or feel contrived. Uh, Particularly, I remember there was a very cool Bigfoot-style monster. Uh, I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but he was was very interesting. Unfortunately, he was relegated to about two paragraphs of text, and there was really no information about leading your PCs to encounter him or any sort of cool rumors or anything you could find about it. Additionally, there's a a hut that used to contain an evil swamp witch who favored crazy transformation magic. Unfortunately, she's already dead, and there's not much to do there other than find some secret treasure that you're unlikely to actually find. Uh, There's a rattling there for whatever reason. Uh, Along those lines. Um, There is an encounter with a half-depopulated goblin tribe, which follows Paizo's general standards of having goblins be more comedic than particularly threatening. The second part of the adventure, if the PCs are clever enough to discover the hook and decide to play along, involves a brief caravan trip to the ruins of Brinewall, about 16 days away from where they are currently located. Luckily, this gives an excuse to use the caravan rules presented in the Free Player's Guide for the Adventure. Unfortunately, those rules are rather sparse and don't look like they'd be terribly interesting to use at the table. More to the point, this leg of the adventure lasts, like I said, about 16 days and has a 10% chance of an encounter each day, meaning that it will result in an average of about 1.5 encounters, which will be rolled randomly. Very exciting. Things get somewhat better when the players actually reach the keep, which has some fun and clever encounters in it, such as an unstable catapult that may be as dangerous to its user as its target, a pair of more powerful enemies that are injured and fatigued from their wrestling match, and a giant lizard that's partially blind and so suffers mischance. Uh, The castle's lord, uh, Yamabushi Tengu Oni, is at once easy to hate, comical, and potentially dangerous, and an encounter with him turns into a chase through through the palace fort thing in order to confront him, and looks like it would be really fun, uh, though it does seem to suffer from a lack of a well-thought-out conclusion. Uh, Still, the keep suffers from problems as well, primarily the fact that it's a hodgepodge of unrelated monstrous humanoids, troglodytes, ogrekin, ogres, a number of strange birdmen called dire corbies, a quickling, and a harpy, uh, that are all living and working together for no apparent reason or sensible uh, explanation. Also, like many Paizo Adventure Paths, the adventure contains several encounters that will simply be out of the PC's league. Though the adventure is supposed to end by the time the PCs reach level 4, it has no shortage of CR 5 or 6 encounters and a decent likelihood of a CR 8 one. 
A simplistic schedule for the dire Corbys, the Keep's main occupants, makes the Keep feel a little more fleshed out and earns the author some points, but the fact that the schedule is so simple uh, prevents it from really doing much, and in fact only really serves to gather all the Corbys in one place for an hour a day, creating a particularly difficult encounter. Uh, none of the other creatures in the Keep have schedules either, somewhat ruining the effect. Another thing I do like about the adventure are the various named magic weapons they present. One of these is actually a plot hook, and not really worth that much mechanically, as a hefty price in gold must be expended to get it repaired, and its mechanical ability, shield other once per day, isn't that exciting. The other, however, a Kusari Gama named Dancing Wasp, can summon a giant wasp once per day. While the item is ridiculously overpriced at over 12,000 GP, uh, in the adventure it can be claimed from a fallen foe, and even if the ability isn't that powerful, I found it pretty cool. Once you move past the adventure, however, the remaining 40 or so pages of the book only have so much to offer. The description of the Sandpoint Hinterlands provides the least information possible to be able to make an adventure out of, and so if you want to ignore the rest of the adventure path and make a number of your own adventures based on places around Sandpoint, it might be useful. Otherwise, it's not nearly enough for you to be able to do anything without hours of work, uh, and only serves to give PCs places to want to go, but which you haven't prepared. Besides which, several of the places are far too powerful for the PCs to travel to in this adventure, and a number of the des descriptions boil down to little more than, there are some goblins or bugbears here. In any event, it feels like the section should really have been cut in order to better flesh out the rest of the adventure. Next is the Ecology of the Oni, which is an enjoyable read that seems likely to have an important bearing on the larger adventure path. It's not strictly necessary for running the adventure, but will be invaluable to any GM who has a player that wants to know more about their mysterious Oni foes. If the short story, The Flayed Man, has any purpose in this book, I'm not sure what it is. While it's not terribly written, it didn't particularly impress either, and any connection to, that it may have to the adventure, other than being set in the Pathfinder country of Tion, where later installments of this adventure path will take place, is lost on me. Finally, the bestiary provides information on some useful monsters. It gives statistics and information for three aquatic insects, one of which was used in the adventure. It also gives information on the cool, if somewhat odd, wind-themed demons, which don't appear in the adventure at all. Next is the Ratling, based on the Lovecraft character Brown Jenkins, a rat with a human head, hands, and intelligence. One of these does appear in the adventure on the side, as I mentioned before, and information for using it as a familiar is given in the bestiary, uh, which is nice. Finally, the bestiary gives information on the Yamabushi Tengu Oni, which, as I said, one was involved in the keep. I know from experience that this is not the best adventure pie that was ever published. It hinges heavily on a DMPC and provides only cursory information on how to keep the game running smoothly despite that huge handicap. Many parts of the book seem rushed or underdeveloped, and some elements of the story feel rather contrived. The new rules for NPC relationships and caravan travel are lackluster, to say the least, and DMs will need to do a fair amount of work on their own in order to make this a quality adventure. Despite all that, though, I can't deny that now that I've read it, the DM in me can't help but want to run it, and the player in me is excited about the possibility of a similarly themed adventure, if not necessarily one I already know all the details about. So, while the book may need some work, it seems clear that it's done its job in part, at least. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of that design philosophy stuff that I was talking about before, the editorial content, that sort of thing. Today's topic for this, we want to talk a little bit about the new article format. You may have noticed, if you're a fan of the Necromancers of the Northwest, if you've been on our website, www.necromancers-online.com, before, you may know that up until very recently, up until about last week, we had five regular articles, one every weekday, uh, which included things like dark designs that talked about design philosophy and 
and uh, DM advice. We had grave plots, which gave DM ideas for, for adventures. We had um, Masters and Minions, which provided encounter ideas each week. We also had a Forsaken feature, which talked about 4th edition. Um, recently, you may have noticed this last week, we've changed our lineup a little bit, and we wanted to talk to you a little bit about why that is. So, Josh, why don't you introduce them to our new lineup? Okay, so on Mondays, we got Best in Class. This is where we provide new class features and class options. New archetypes for your classes, and additional rogue talents, rage powers, things along that line. On Tuesdays, we open up with Extraordinary Feats, which is devoted to ten or more feats every week uh, along a specific theme. Next, on Wednesdays, we have Obscure Arcana, devoted to a selection of spells from our twisted necromantic minds. And on Thursdays, we do our Magical Marketplace, which, which as you might have guessed, is devoted to magical items, uh, which you can sell in the Marketplace. Fridays, obviously, we, uh, we set out the podcast. So, you may be wondering why we've decided to suddenly change our lineup. Uh, as I explained in our My Dark Designs article a couple of weeks ago, uh, a major factor of that was the fact that we did recently lose our third member of the group, Justin Holloway, uh, recently was lost to real life. Uh, however, there are some other reasons why we decided for a more drastic change instead of uh, as we discussed, possibly just cutting down a couple of articles or, or something to that effect. Uh, one of the reasons is that we felt we wanted to have a little bit more of a focus on player content, um, as, uh, as that is something that we definitely feel that players and, and most of our readers are going to be more interested. After all, uh, the vast majority of people in a gaming group are going to be players, not DMs. Yeah, and they our website before was catering mostly to the uh, to the one in five. So opening up more player content obviously expands our uh, marketability, appealability, appeal, yeah, something like that. Something anyway. like that. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, uh, while we while we did before, most of our books focused primarily. On, on player content, they generally were where you found the majority of the feats and spells and magic items and that sort of stuff. Um, now we wanted to get some of that on the website as well, for one thing, because you know we were originally putting everything out for free, and it's nice to, to make sure we're putting out some fun stuff for free. Uh, also, the article that we had for that before from the workshop uh, kind of covered all of these articles previously, and it was... It was frustrating sometimes when we decided we were going to sit down and thought it'd be fun that we were going to you know, use stuff from the things that we had made and put on the website. We always found it was a little bit difficult to find that much stuff that we could really work in, especially at lower levels, simply because from the, from the workshop kind of was all over the place. And so it would be hard sometimes to really, it wasn't a very, didn't cover everything very well. It kind of, like I said, I guess went all over the place. So there were lots of gaps. Yeah, the new format is definitely a lot better. The reason we chose these uh, these four articles is these are basically the kinds of things we were doing with From the Workshop, with the exception of monsters, which you'll notice we're not doing. Or at the very least, there are a lot of the things that we definitely wanted to be doing. We may not have done, for example, as much alternate class features, or uh, I don't think there were very many articles on spells either. It was the sort of thing. It's the sort of thing that people, you know, that we feel that people are really going to be able to use, and uh, and by providing them 
in this very organized format, it's going to be really not only simpler, but, but more convenient for people to find what it is they're looking for. Uh, That's true. I do know it was a pain to go through those uh, those archives for from the workshop because it was there was no rhyme or reason to what was where. You just had to sort of dig through and hope that you remembered what the name of the article was, uh, if indeed you even knew what you were looking for. If you hadn't actually been reading all of those articles, you have no idea whether, for example, an article called uh, the Einherjar, especially if you're not familiar with Einherjar, whether that's going to be a magic weapon or a template, as it turned out to be, or a prestige class, or Lord knows what. Yeah, uh, so by breaking them up this way, it's a lot easier to find what you're looking for, and you're, you're going to get what you expect. Uh. Also, it allows us to make sure that we devote a lot of time to each of these different things. For example, uh, before, theoretically, From the Workshop is devoted to doing spells, as well as all of those other things. I think if you go through the archives, you're going to find two, maybe three articles that have any spells in them. And, uh, I mean, it's just not that much. And now we've got one dedicated every week. On top of that, we've made a uh, we've made a commitment and we've put steps in place where we're going to try to make sure that all of these articles are specifically trying to cater to a wide variety of player characters. There's there's steps to ensure that there's always some content for lower level characters and generally uh, some content for higher level characters. Also, we've got an eye on making sure that we don't, for example, have all of the spells be for sorcerer wizards and make sure that you know the clerics and bards and even paladins and Rangers of the world get a little bit of love in that sort of thing, and, and that applies again to the others as well. We want to make sure everybody gets a little bit of something. Yeah, and uh, since, since we're doing that, the articles are really going to be useful to everybody every week, or as close to that as we can manage. While useful to somebody every week in any case. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so... You may be wondering, what is this going to mean for our books? You may have already noticed that in my previous Dark Design article, when I was talking about changes that we were going to be making here, one of the things that I said was that we're going to be producing a few less books. Obviously, we have less writers, less staff. The content's going to go down a bit. Uh, some of you may have noticed the content's going down a little bit more proportionately than uh, the reduction in staff. This is not anything to worry about. I assure you this is primarily because we've devoted our, uh, started to devote some of our attentions to a secret project that I can't really tell you anything about at the moment, but which we'll unveil a little bit more about in future podcasts, I have no doubt. Uh, but anyway, uh, so we are going to be putting out a few less books. Um, it does give us the opportunity to consider, at the very least, when we're making those books, making those a little more DM-focused. We've dabbled with adventures before. There's been some talk of doing some more adventures in the future. We're not sure exactly where we're going to go with books in the future. We've got the next couple lined up, and those were actually done before, so those aren't going to reflect the lack of uh, the lack of staff here. But you may be seeing some changes in the future as our books may start to go a little more towards DMs. There's also talk, you'll notice, that these articles don't include classes. Uh, there's no whole classes included here, so no prestige classes either, so it's possible that we may start looking at books that are going to just focus on having whole classes cut from cloth and, and books with prestige classes, like, for example, the, the Druid book, uh, which just had those three prestige classes and which has been relatively popular so far. Uh, similarly, maybe stuff like that witch book where we just go, hey, here's a class, we're going to do everything we can for it. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, the articles will, of course, be focusing on the con sort of things that you could find in a lot of those products, like new feats for witches, new spells, 
for witches, but it's going to be a more broad topic. Uh, however, it's time to move on to a new segment called Best Beasts. Yes, in this segment, we're going to talk every week uh, about one, or possibly in future weeks more, uh, individual monsters. And what we're talking about on these monsters is whether or not they're cool. Not whether they're effective, not whether they're powerful, not whether they are something you want to include in your game, but whether or not they are cool. Uh, so, without further ado, today's monster on the chopping block is the vampire. And Josh here thinks that the vampire is cool. Vampires have always been cool. Uh, think about it. You have to pick to be any kind of monster. They're forcing you. Vampire? It's at the top of your list, isn't it? That's because being a vampire is just like being a human, but better. You get to be faster. You get to be stronger. You can't be killed by bullets. It's just pretty much great. Uh, you get more action as a vampire. I mean, even Dracula had women falling all over him. Sure, he had to hypnotize a few of them, but uh, because he's a vampire, he gets to hypnotize people. Another upside. Um, but modern vampires don't even have to hypnotize people. They just brood a little bit and the girls come running. <laughs> I think we might just start trying some brooding, you know, on the weekends. Anyway, um, those girls, they know how cool vampires are. There's other upsides, too. Uh, maybe you get to turn into a bat. Bats are cool. Uh, and you get to wear a cape. Think about it. You can't wear a cape now. People are going to make fun of you. But when you're a vampire and you're wearing a cape and somebody makes fun of you, you just eat them. Drink their blood. What are they going to do about it? Nothing. You're a vampire. Um, th sure, there, there are a few downsides. Uh, you can't cross running water, but we have bridges for that. Uh, you can't go out in the sun, but you're so cool, you're going to be spending all your time in trendy nightclubs anyway. And, uh, sure, you can't enter homes without an invitation, but uh, the children of the night always get invited in. You know, there's a reason that vampires so often call themselves things like children of the night, and that's because even they are occasionally forced to recognize how childish and pedantic their constant moaning and whining about never seeing the sun and living a supposedly cursed existence is. I could perhaps understand all this angst from vampires who were sired or embraced while they were in their teens. If I had to go through hundreds of years of puberty, I'd probably be a bit angsty myself. But the rest of the vampires get a pretty sweet deal, and their constant attempts to portray themselves as victims and anti-heroes really undercuts whatever coolness they might have gotten from their powers. The latest Twilight movie came out not that long ago, so let's take that as an example. The vampires in that movie are super fast, super strong, practically impossible to destroy, and, in top of all, and on top of it all, they each have unique superpowers. They're not even hurt by the sun. But what does the vampire main character do about it? He broods and sulks and whines and talks about how terrible it is to be a vampire. Now the old school vampires, those I might have been able to respect. It takes a certain amount of courage to try and pull off one of those black capes with the big cowls, and wearing evening wear everywhere you go is certainly a bold statement. And I don't recall Dracula ever whining or moaning about how bad he had it. There are a few other exceptions as well. For example, the Count from Sesame Street. He seems like an okay guy. Strahd von Zarovich of Ravenloft fame has good reason to be angsty. He's cool, too. But these are the exceptions, standing out from the rest of their ilk. Vampires, in general, are whiny little goth wannabes who don't know how to run with a good thing. Totally uncool. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're they're just not. Uh, all right. So in conclusion, now that we've both had our say, what is it that we really think about vampires? Are they cool or are they losers? Well, I think that the answer to that question is being a vampire doesn't make you particularly cooler or less cool. Uh, but the fact is that, that the cool vampires were cool before they were vampires and that the uncool vampires were pretty much destined to be losers. Uh, There's definitely something to be said to that. Uh, they're, as I said myself, they're definitely cool vampires and I think that being a vampire, a vampire doesn't definitely damn you to being uncool nor does it automatically make you cool as rabid opponents of Twilight will no doubt uh, point out quite quickly. However, uh, there is another thing to consider here. While it's true that vampires as characters uh, can ran a, run a wide variety of, of coolness factors, there are also vampires as random dungeon monsters where they just sort of attack, go blah, and attack you, and don't really bother to say anything or have any personality. Yeah, these random ghoul vampires that just sort of rush out full of bloodlust and rage going, rah, um, they're, they're not so cool. Uh, frankly, they're just zombies with a little bit less scariness to them, and there's really no reason they should be vampires, uh, except maybe to give them DR over silver. Uh, <laughs> All right, so we're decided then. Vampire characters, cool neutral. Vampire uh, vampire monsters, totally thumbs down. Yeah, that's right. All righty. Now it's time for us to move into the next segment, which we have decided to call Optimal Options. In this segment of our podcast, we're going to give a little bit of information about specific mechanical content that you might find in various books, uh, primarily Paizo core books, things that most people will be familiar with, uh, and just sort of talk about the unsung heroes of that, talk a little bit of strategy, maybe give you some options to pimp out your next character or your next uh, your next NPC that you really need to impress the players with. Um, so we've each got a couple of topics we want to talk about. Um, today what I want to talk to you about is something called communal spells, because when I think of unsung mechanics, the first thing that comes to mind is the spells found in Ultimate Combat, because after all, who's going to be looking in Ultimate Combat for spells? So, I was looking in there and I found that they introduced a new set of spells called Communal Spells, which basically involved taking a normal spell and allowing you to divide the duration of that spell amongst other targets. So, for example, if you had Communal Stone Skin uh, comes immediately to mind, then what you could do is, if since it has a duration of 10 minutes a level, if you are level 5 and you get 50 minutes, you could give 5 different people 10 minutes, or you could give one person 30 minutes and two people 10 minutes, or whatever. Uh, so some of these spells are particularly cool and worth mentioning, uh, because their decision to only divide the spell up by its duration means that some spells are going to benefit from this much more than others. The ones that come immediately to mind uh, as being the best of the bunch are Communal Protection from Arrows and Communal Stone Skin. Uh, since these last an hour level, uh, you'll still be able to go through an entire... Well, uh, Protection from Arrows lasts an hour level. Stone Skin only lasts 10 minutes level. But uh, since these last a decent amount of time, uh, with Protection from Arrows, you'll still be able to go through a whole dungeon, even after dividing that amongst the party. With Stone Skin, you may still be able to at higher levels, and you'll certainly be able to go through a couple of encounters. Uh, and you get the full effect on each target. So that means that instead of casting one Stone Skin and getting... 50 minutes of DR10 over adamantine and having a total of 10 
uh, hit points per caster level that can be absorbed that way. You can instead give that to five different people for 10 minutes and get a grand total of, say, 250 hit points absorbed that way. It's a great uh, energy saver on that. It does go up one level in order to do that, but I would much rather expend a fifth level spell slot than f- five fourth level spell slots. Uh, Especially with the material component. <laughs> yeah, that actually with the stone skin is uh, 100 per target, so it's a little bit cheaper. That's a little less, um, little less of a saving there. Uh, along the same lines, the communal protection from energy and communal energy resistance. Uh, if you're where, if you're putting those on because you know that you're going up against someone who's going to be doing specific energy damage and you just want it for one fight, that is pure gold, same as above. If you're doing it because you're concerned about environmental a- hazards, if you're, say, uh, going through the elemental plane of fire and you need protection from the constant fire damage, it's not going to be as good unless you're only going to be on that plane for a very short period of time. Uh, I also want to <clears throat> I also want to point out communal phantasmal mount. Um, phantasmal mount in general not the best spell in the world, uh, but uh, the communal version might be worthwhile at 14th level or so when your phantasmal mount gains the ability to fly. Uh, obviously, by then normally you should be able to teleport, but if for whatever reason you can't, this is a good way to get flight for the entire party. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't really bother with this one. Uh, another thing worth noting is communal spider climb and communal water walk. Uh, those are both useful for combat situations, as the duration on each of these is, again, more than enough to last for a single encounter, probably two or three. Additionally, it's very good for getting around obstacles. Uh, ten minutes of spider climb, which is the minimum that each character would get with this, is worth 4,000 feet of climbing in ten minutes, and then water walk will get you 6,000 feet at double moving. Uh, if you can run while you're water walking, then that will get you notably more. Uh, I also want to mention spell immunity. There's communal spell immunity, and then I think they've got an improved and a greater as well. Um, those are those are great if you know that you're going to be getting a specific spell at a specific time. It makes the whole party immune instead of just one person per casting. Um, if you're going to need it for the whole day, if you're just really worried that someone's going to drop a, I don't know, mage uh, magic missile on you uh, the whole day, you want to make sure you're protected, then it becomes a little less worthwhile. Um, similarly, I want to point out that one you should probably never take is communal endure elements. Uh, generally speaking, if you're worried about the overall effect of the temperature outside, you're probably going to be out in it long enough that you're going to want the full duration on that, and dividing it up just isn't going to do you any good. Uh, now, why don't I go ahead and hand you over to Josh. He's going to tell you a little bit about something else. Yeah, so we're looking today at ranged fighting. Okay, so you've decided to make a character dedicated to ranged fighting. So the next step for you is to make a ranger, right? Maybe not. Uh... The genre tells us that all archers, all good archers, just sort of skulk around in the forest, wearing green, huddling with the animals, and helping out poor folks. Now, rangers are very good at this, but are they any good at archery? Well, they have a uh, combat-style feature that allows them to specialize in archery, so maybe. Uh, Let's have a look at what kind of archery-related abilities a level 5 ranger might have. So, a level 5 ranger with a dex of 20, pretty reasonable, a plus two longbow, the best he can really afford. We'll be attacking at plus 12 for one day, plus two damage. Small rangers, plus 13 uh, for one day, six, plus two. Uh, and then you get to add in the feats and the specialization bonus feat. So then you might want to take 
point blank shot, deadly aim, weapon focus longbow, precise shot, rapid shot. That's all the feats you would get if you were a human ranger. Uh, if you're an inhuman ranger, you might want to get rid of probably precise shot. Uh, anyway, so there, if you're looking to max your damage, deadly aiming, and rapid shotting, you get to attack at plus 8, plus 8, plus 9, plus 9 if you're point blank shotting. For one day, plus 6 or plus 7 if within 30 feet. That's not bad. Uh, but I think you can do better. A level 5 fighter, on the other hand, with the same dexterity and weapon, uh, and weapon training in, uh, in the lo- appropriate weapon, longbow, attacks at plus 13 for a 1 die 8 plus 3, an extra point of damage. That is, uh, just to make sure, that is plus 13, plus 13, right, when he's, uh, when he's rapid shutting, or... Uh, th- this is, again, just base attacking, and okay. he won't get the second attack for another level, just like the ranger, so... Right, well, you give the, the ranger... Yeah, we're, we're getting there in okay. Hold on a second. Uh... So now the fighter gets to spend his bonus feats. Fighter gets seven feats instead of five if he's human, uh, and can have point blank shot, precise shot, weapon focus longbow, deadly aim, rapid shot, weapon specialization longbow, which the ranger cannot have, and then wh- whatever other feat you want, say far shot. Uh, then when he just chooses to rapid shot for deadly aim, he'll be attacking at plus nine, plus nine, plus ten, plus ten if he's point blank shot shotting which is, as you'll notice, one better than the ranger. For one die plus nine, three better than the ranger. You still get heavy armor, and everything else you might want to do with the fighter. Okay, so, at level five, fighter is a better ranged combatant. But maybe as levels progress, the rangers gets more feats, things will sort of even out. No, not, not even a little bit. The fighter just gets more and more feats, and he gets access to better feats than the ranger does, like improved weapon focus, greater weapon specialization, a uh, handful of fighter-only feats from APG2 that have to do with archery. Uh, and it, you might be thinking, well, okay, fighter's better in that respect, that's nice, but what about the favored enemy? I mean, the ranger gets huge bonus when he shoots that bow at, like, a goblin or whatever, right? Yes, he does. He gets uh, 10 to attack and damage, which is... Uh, which is good. The fighter can't quite match that on a single class feature. 10 to attacking damage, that's at 20th level if he focuses specifically on a single opponent, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the the fighter at the same time, at, uh, at, at the end of the game, will be getting uh, will be getting 5 to everything to attack and damage. Uh, all, all the time. And, and he'll also be getting weapons bonuses with his sword at a reduced rate. Uh, so, uh, in conclusion... Uh, the fighter is uh, is not surprisingly better at fighting than a ranger. Uh, so should we then conclude that fighters are better than rangers? No, not necessarily. Rangers get, can do all kinds of things fighters can't do, like cast spells. Not quite as good as, well, okay, not even close to as good as like a druid. They they get an animal companion or a or another hunter's bond thing, which is okay. Uh, you can get flanking with the companion, so that's good. Uh huh. They they get way more skill points, which actually is useful, and uh, they they also get favored enemy, favored terrains, like a bunch of other like little cool things. So, if you want to be a ranged fighter, be a fighter. If if you want to be a ranger and wander around in the woods, all you know, rangery, you know, go with the ranger. And on that happy note about communing with nature, we're gonna go ahead and move on for a bit to talk about what we said we were gonna talk about at the beginning of the show, which is our recent product, Advanced Arcana 2. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, Advanced Arcana 2 is a book that we put out a little bit last month. It came out in early December, and it's got 
Uh, mostly it consists of a little bit over a hundred new spells for all different kinds of spellcasting classes, but it also contains a, a few other pieces of information in the appendix. It's got some some alternate familiars, some uh, spellbook customization options, some fun things like that. It's a sequel to a previous book we made, Advanced Arcana, which was incredibly popular, one of our best-selling books of all time. Uh, we wanted to take a little bit to talk about some of the cool little design stories and explain why we did some of the things we did and how the book turned out the way that it, it turned out. Uh, one of the major exciting features of the book is alternate, or I suppose uh, variations on the segmented spell, which was first introduced in Advanced Arcana. Uh, segmented spells are spells that take up multiple spell slots, and so in order to cast a segmented spell, uh, for example, if you wanted to cast one that was uh, it had three segments and it was a third level spell, you would need to prepare three different third level spell slots with that spell, and then you would need to cast all three of them in succession normally in order to uh, in order to do that. In this book, however, we put a little bit of a twist on those with two new kinds of segmented spells, the layered segmented spell, which provides a bonus or a benefit after each segment of the spell is cast, unlike the original where the spell was not considered to be completed until after the final version was cast. Uh, additionally, we also include the X segment spell. Uh, like I said before, if you had a segment, if you had a segmented spell, it would say the number of segments, like three or five or whatever. X segment spells, or um, I guess they they wind up being called variable yeah. segment spells. Uh, they they were called X segments in uh, in playtesting, so I I apologize for that. Uh, but they uh, what they do is they let you put in any amount of segments, and then there's a mechanical effect that depends on the number of segments that's actually used to cast it. So the one question you might be wondering is why did we put in alternate segmented spells? Why didn't we just stick with the original segmented spell? And the answer to that actually comes from a spell that was originally going to be included in Advanced Arcana, but never did. It was written by Josh, so why don't you tell him about it? Yeah, so the spell in question was designed to summon an immense horde of netherworldly monstrosities. Uh, demons, and that the original spell had undead too, but... Uh, when, when I printed the spell, I wasn't, you know, I wanted to play with segmented spells, make them a little bit uh, up the ante. So, in the initial spell, when you cast it, things got all dark and dreary, and it just, every segment, things in the area got more doom and gloomy, until eventually you get to the badass effect. Wow, that sounds a little familiar. Every segment, you say. <laughs> yeah, every segment. Uh, which is uh, which is obviously where layered segments ended up coming from. Uh, we, uh... That spell ended up not quite making the cut in uh, in Advanced Arcana 2, but we do have a number of fantastically good uh, layered segments that capture that original feel, but with a little bit more polish, uh, and available at various different levels. That's true. I seem to recall that one was uh, that was a ninth level spell, and what wasn't it like like thirteen segments? It was it was yeah, really thir- inaccessible. Thirteen segments, and each casting was like a day. And yeah, it was it was a fun spell. And uh, don't get me wrong, I actually intended for it to be in Advanced Arcana too uh, when I first when I first had it pulled from Advanced Arcana. The reason I did was because I thought it was such a great spell. I wanted to see us really devote some uh, some time to it and make sure that we actually played out to the full extent of what I thought it could do. And we definitely wound up doing that in Advanced Arcana 2. The only reason that that in particular spell isn't in it uh, is actually because we lost it in the intervening time. Um, 
So we do we do have a similar spell um, that that does summon legions of demons. It's it's not really really quite the same. It doesn't have quite the same sort of grandiose doom and gloom. It's a little more utilitarian and. That's true, but our existing summon demon spell does do a better job of being a layered segment than the uh, than the original proto layered segment does, because you get a uh, you get a related effect at each level, whereas the the initial spell was very much here's a bunch of cool atmospheric effects and then what the completed segment would do. So that's true, and and from a pure design aesthetic perspective, that's always nice to have that that sort of related effect. Uh, it, it is worth noting that, you know, especially with things like D&D and, and these spells and, and, you know, it's really as much a, a storytelling and a fantasy uh, product as it is uh, a pure design and game product. Uh, and so sometimes it is nice to have that extra uh, that extra flavor, even if it doesn't make sense purely from a design and mechanical perspective. Uh, and then moving on a little bit uh, to talk about the other kind of alternate segment spell, the, uh, the variable segmented spell um, those those came about from similar reasons when we started playing around with the theme of the book which which be quickly became um, spells that were changeable and that could be cast in different ways for different effects uh, one of the things that quickly came up was the idea of a segmented spell that could be cast with different amounts of segments I don't remember if we had any of these for the original advanced arcana I, I don't think so I don't no. think they came up um, I we could be misremembering, I don't know, but I, I don't think they came up. I think this came up out of a desire to, to fill that. Uh, those were fun, too. Um, initially, initially, they were a little bit hard to work with because, as you might imagine, there are only so many places in the game, so many mechanics and things that can really handle the strain of theoretically being able to go infinite. Because uh, originally, the, the idea was that all... Uh, X segment spells, as they were called at the time, or all variable segment spells, uh, were going to be able to go infinite. You could have any number of segments put into them. Uh, there are still some like that, uh, mostly because we think that that's a, a fun and sort of sexy sort of idea where you can really go infinite. But there are definitely some mechanics that really just can't handle that, and we needed to rein it in in some places. And so we actually we actually managed to get quite a bit of a breakthrough with those when we sort of stumbled, I guess, onto the idea that, no, they don't all have to go infinite. We can have some that say, hey, you can have any number of segments from one to five or yeah. one to three. And that, that really allowed us, I think, to do a lot with those. And I think that those are fun, and, and you're going to produce a lot of fun effects in games as well, especially uh, especially those, and, and some of those infinite ones uh, will be especially fun when you when you start getting large groups of casters together uh, in order to, to pool their resources, because obviously, um, if you're not familiar with Master King, you may not know, um, you can actually work cooperatively with other spell casters who have access to the spell as well to sort of pool your segments into one casting. Yeah, so when you get your whole coven together, you can do some crazy stuff with the variable segmented spells. And even with the ones that don't go infinite, it can be useful to have your cohort speed up the effect a little bit. That's true. That's that's why they originally were able to do that for the original Advanced Arcana, obviously, um, was to allow, uh, to allow it to go a little bit faster. And I, if I remember correctly, segmented spells were designed in part to allow for, uh, for that sort of collective spellcasting uh, feel that previously D&D didn't really have that much of. Yeah, you know, this large uh, covens and ritual spell casting is a huge part of fantasy media and folklore, but it just really didn't exist before. I mean, there's 
some support for covens and hags, but it's not really the same thing. They get some spell-like abilities, and it works like regular casting. It just doesn't have the same kind of feel that you get with segmented spells. One last thing about segmented spells that I just wanted to mention before we move on to talking about other things is people who are paying close attention to Advanced Arcana 2 will notice, especially if they didn't read any of Advanced Arcana 1, uh, they'll notice that just about every segmented spell has a line in it somewhere that says, unlike most segmented spells, and then it talks about how it can either be cast uh, with any number of segments or how it can how it provides an effect with each one. Uh, there aren't actually any normal segmented spells in Advanced Arcana 2. Those were kind of left behind in Advanced Arcana. Um, I just thought I would I point out why we did that, because obviously they're... Uh, that will cause confusion amongst people who didn't get Advanced Arcana, and possibly amongst people who did as well, who just want to know why not. Uh, the reason for that is largely because with the book's new focus on um, on having a variety of different effects that can come out of a single spell, uh, it was it, it just seemed like it was a better idea to, to make sure they play with that. There's nothing in these new variants that's... Or that there's nothing that's in the old segmented spells that's not in these new variants. They give us all the same design space. They just give us extra options. And so because the focus was on, on mutability and the ability to do different things with the same spell, uh, we just wanted to make sure that we were really exploring that and weren't spending too much time on the old segmented spells, which were done... As far as the uh, the basic mechanics go, they were done pretty well in the first Advanced Arcana. And while there's certainly room for more segmented spells, they don't necessarily need the plain ones that much spotlight here. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all right. So, now that we've got that, let's talk a little bit about fountain spells, uh, which still always feels a little bit weird for me to say, because I never really intended for that to be their proper name. Um, but let's talk about fountain spells. Those were in Advanced Arcana, the original one. They provided... They provided restored spell slots after you cast them. It's a little bit of a difficult concept to wrap your head around if you're not familiar with them. Uh, but basically what it is is you, you cast, say, a 5th level fountain spell. You get, a, you get an effect that's a little bit less than what you might normally be expecting from a 5th level spell. And in addition, you suddenly restore a lesser spell slot. Like, say, say you restore a 3rd level spell slot that you had already used that day. Or, um, or a prepared spell if you're a prepared spellcaster. Uh... They were really cool. They were probably my favorite part of Advanced Arcana. And so you might be wondering when you look at Advanced Arcana 2 and they're not there, why not? Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, for one thing, it is a relatively simple mechanic once you get used to the idea of what it does. And so we didn't want to overtax the design. We wanted to make sure that we were putting them in a place where they were really going to do their best. Obviously, if you're looking for spells that can do multiple different things... It's hard to really compete with, I get a spell, and then I get a completely different spell of a lower level that can be any spell I know. (laughs) That's true, and that would definitely have fit in there. Uh, But despite that, I'm not really sure that there was going to be that much that we could do that was going to be really interesting and directly tying into the mechanic, uh, the the theme this this book has of the, the mutable spells. Uh, through what the spell is actually doing. It's mostly just that it's giving you a different spell. And so I definitely like fountain spells, and I want to make sure that we do some more of them sometime in the future. Uh, I'm just not sure that this was the book for them, and I want to make sure we give them their proper place. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Uh, Additionally, 
with something like Fountain Spells coming coming back in their original form. Advanced Arcana 2 has been kind of a, uh, a leap forward in uh, in our design process for spells. And uh, going going back to something like that, uh, while it's not contrary in any way, would, would I think, have overall hurt the product. Uh, not that Fountain Spells are bad. Uh, what we do have, though, for those of you looking for variable, variable spells, are modal and conditional spells. Uh, spells that are very much what we had in mind when we created the product. That is true. Uh, there's there's really uh, there's really nothing that more gets into the core of what this product is about probably than modal and conditional spells. Um, they're a little less obvious sometimes about their uh, about their differences than are say X segment or variable segment spells or layered segment spells, uh, which which obviously. Um, with the layered segment spell, you know, every time you cast it, it's doing something different with each individual segment. Uh, but with these, let, let me guys tell you a little bit what they are. Modal spells uh, are are really simplistic in in idea. Uh, basically, you have a spell uh, that can do one of two things, and you choose what it does when you cast it. So, for example, we have one. I, I think it wound up being called Viltania's Better Body, and it uh, it can either basically replicate Stone Skin or it can basically replicate uh, gaseous form, and you choose it when you cast it. And so you, uh, you, you cast that, you choose which one you want, whatever's better at the time, and then you go with it. Uh, similarly, conditional spells uh, are spells that hinge on a specific condition. The, the effect that they have depends on a specific condition being met. So uh, moon scry, as one example, will only work under a full moon. Uh, a somewhat uh, better example uh, might be Something like um, I think it's spread disease, where you can inflict the target with the disease, and it's okay. Or if you happen to already be carrying that disease when you inflict them with it, then it works much much better. Um, and so these these spells they may not be as mechanics. They're not the sexiest thing on paper when you look at them. There's not a whole lot that says, "Hey, look at me. I'm a special mechanic." It's not like segmented spells that obviously need pages and pages of text to explain what's going on. Um, but I think that they're exciting, even though in both cases there have been spells that have done that before. Um, none of those spells were designed for the purpose of exploring that space. They just happened to do that for whatever reason. Like, for example, while plant growth can do very different things, it wasn't done for the purpose of allowing you to do very different things. It was done because both of those things fall under the sort of fantasy archetype of magically growing plants. Yeah, whereas our uh, whereas our modal spells were very much designed for. Okay, so you would want this this sort of versatility out of a spell like that, and we created it so that you could explore that. Uh, Obviously, when we could, we we tried our best to make sure that it made flavorful sense. For example, uh, there's a certain duality that can be exposed out of the difference between gaseous form and stone skin, sort of opposite ends of a spectrum. We've got another one that's like you can be invisible or you can make someone lit up like fairy fire, that sort of stuff. Um, and and in, in most of those cases, uh, there is a flavorful tie-in. It's not raw mechanics for the sake of, of raw mechanics because... Really, at the end of the day, most people don't really love that that much. Some people do, and the better for them, but... Um. Yeah. Uh, additionally, uh, in terms of not having just raw mechanics for mechanics' sake, I think conditional spells do a very good job 
of tying in the flavor of your surroundings with the uh, with the mechanic in question, uh, such, such as scrying under moonlight for the uh, for the greater effect, or being diseased for the greater effect, and uh, and that sort of environmental condition is uh, very important in uh, in magic, in folklore, and, and in other places that uh, that it only be accomplishable or be accomplishable to a greater effect under certain conditions. That's true. In fact, one of the first uh, one of the first modal and conditional, actually, it's kind of both uh, spells that I actually wrote for the book is one called Wall of Water, uh, which is one of my favorites and and one that I wanted to to sort of show off a little bit here in the the podcast. Uh, what Wall of Water does is when you cast it normally, it is a wall of water. It's it's difficult to move through. It's not really a solid barrier provides like concealment and I, I think you can't attack through it and it's like difficult terrain you have to make a strength check to go through it however if you cast a fire spell the round before then the lingering energies of that fire spell commingle with the wall of water spell to create instead a wall of steam which does not hamper anybody still offers concealment but causes a little bit of fire damage to people who pass through it alternatively uh, clever readers might be guessing that if you cast an ice spell right before you cast it, then the wall of water instead manifests as a wall of ice. Not as per the spell, it's a little bit weaker than that. It doesn't do, like, wall of ice does a bunch of damage when you cut through it for whatever reason. This one doesn't do that, uh, mostly for balance reasons, but partially because I don't really, I, I guess it's magic ice that does extra damage. Anyway, um, whatever the case, I thought that was a fun example that's it's both very flavorful and very utilitarian because it can do three different things uh, as long as you're able to, to provide the raw spell uh, necessary in order to do that. And, of course, sometimes it'll provide uh, fun challenges where, for example, you don't foresee wanting to have a wall of ice, and so you need to spend an extra round casting, the, casting that ice spell, or else, I suppose, have a quickened ice spell uh, in order to get that wall of ice, uh, and so provides a little extra hoops and a little more to work for in order to get that, that extra benefit. And, indeed, the very challenge of that can be as fun and rewarding as the actual reward the spell offers. Yeah. Uh, of course, Wall of Ice isn't the only cool spell in Advanced Arcana 2. Uh, let's take some time to talk about some of the other good ones. Uh, how about Planar Translocation, where you can teleport not only yourself to another plane, but also the surroundings. Uh, your house, your friends, your favorite tree, your favorite stream. Uh, really, it's kind of a crazy high-level spell for people who want to uh, who want to take home with them. My, my favorite my favorite story about planar translocation uh, is actually when I was first explaining it when I when I was first talking about it to the uh, to the others uh, when we were first doing work on this book and I, I sort of showed up with a design skeleton that talked about what all of the spells I wanted to do for and sort of in uh, in brief uh, sketch version uh, Justin actually looked at it and he he said. Well, they already have a spell that teleports you to an, directly to a specific point on another plane. It's in Ultimate Magic. Uh, and I, I was confused, because I was pretty sure I hadn't seen that in Ultimate Magic. So I asked him what it was, and he, he talked about how it was interplanetary teleport. Now, I had actually seen interplanetary teleport, and the first thing that I thought when I saw that was exactly the same thing. Oh no, they made that spell already. You can you can teleport to another plane. Because, of course, that's what people would want. You have plane shift, you have teleport, but besides through gate, never shall the twain meet. You have to plane shift, 
to one or five die percent miles within where you want to go and then teleport and it's a huge pain obviously adding that extra adding that extra ability right into the spell would be really cool which is part of where this spell came from of course then i actually go and look up interplanetary teleport and what is it it's a teleport spell that can let you teleport all the way to other planets on your same plane useful for spell jammers i suppose um a couple other spells i want to mention a little bit um, spells like Ward of Names, which lets you uh, which lets you automatically know whenever someone speaks your name, and it lets you scry on them. And then also Eternal Slumber, which is a spell that that allow, that forces someone to fall into sleep, and then they get a number of saves to wake up. But until they can succeed on that save, which they get less and less frequently as time goes on, uh, they remain sleeping, and there's there's just about nothing that can wake them. Those are both cool things from folklore uh, and from from magic. Uh, sort of sort of magic um, theory from uh, from other sources media uh, that that you don't really get very much of in in D and D and in Pathfinder. Uh, I think the witch has a high level hex that can put someone to sleep eternally. Is that? Yeah, that uh, that that is correct, but it's it's not quite the same. Yeah. Uh, um, again, Eternal Slumber is an excellent spell. Obviously, uh, you, you get a lot of that in, uh, in the fairy tales we're all familiar with. Uh, Sleeping Beauty, that sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, and the, the spell includes the, uh, the the traditional true love's kiss set condition. Uh, obviously, you set the condition. That's true. So, uh, that was that was a good uh, that was a good ad. I had forgotten about that. Say, uh, Josh, um, Josh reminded me that that would be a good thing to include. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention that we stole not so much from uh, from folklore, but from media, uh, was a spell called Grasp of the Hydra. Now, if you're if you're listening to this, then clearly you're a, a, you're, you're someone with fine taste and a good amount of culture. So most likely you didn't see the movie this summer called Your Highness. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm a little bit glad that I did in retrospect. Uh, I I obviously. I didn't watch a whole lot of the previews on that, and so when I went into the theater, I wasn't quite sure exactly what it was. I'd been warned that it wasn't something I was going to like, but I, I perhaps should have heeded those warnings a little bit better. It was a terrible movie. Uh, if you ever have any reason to see it, I suggest that you don't. Uh, but what I can tell you about it is that it did have one really cool scene that almost redeemed the movie. It didn't, but it, it almost did. Yeah, uh, really. <laughs> in, my, uh, in, in my edited memory, it does. Uh, and so, uh, in that in particular scene, the heroes, such as they are, are captured by the evil Swamp King, uh, Mar- Martiti or Mar- Martisi. The or evil so- Swamp King. <laughs> the evil Swamp King. Uh, and he, he throws them in his, in his evil Swamp arena and makes them fight his evil Swamp gladiators. And when they kill his evil Swamp gladiators, he becomes very angry and he calls for his magic cauldron. And he plunges his hand into the magic cauldron, and all of a sudden, erupting out of the earth to attack the uh, the heroes is a five-headed hydra. And it's not immediately apparent, but the more that you watch it, the more it becomes clear that the hydra is, in fact, his hand. And that was a really cool scene that I remember I thought it was really awesome. And so I immediately said, while we were watching it, I leaned over to Josh and I said, Hey, uh... I really want to... You, you need to remind me to make a spell about this because it is it is really cool. I think it would be fun to be able to do that in D&D. Yeah, and at the time I said, yeah, that would be cool. Uh, and when Advanced Arcana 2 rolled around, this was obviously the place to come up with that kind of really high-impact, just, just fantastic kind of spell. And, you know, it also goes to show that you can find inspiration in very unusual places. Uh, 
To briefly uh, talk about another uh, high-impact spell, uh, we did end up creating a, a rather powerful layered segment uh, that we uh, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, called Sorvathal's Inevitable Doom. Now, you might... You might think, upon looking at Sorbethal's Inevitable Doom, especially if we skip right to the end, like uh, like all impatient readers, if you skip right to the end, you'll notice that the spell does, in fact, allow you to kill your target with no save whatsoever. Uh, period. At all. Uh, obviously, there were some slight design concerns about power level. Uh, there was there was some talk about how maybe maybe it's a bad idea to allow people to just, just out-and-out kill people without any save. But, uh, ultimately, we think it came out okay. I'm going to let Josh tell you a little bit about why. Okay, so, the first thing that, uh, that, that anybody who's looking at Sorvathal's Inevitable Doom will notice is probably the casting time. Two months. I think that may have actually gone down to one month. Okay, in, uh, yeah, sorry. That, that's true. It's, it's long. One month. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's notably shorter, admittedly, but... Uh, the point of the spell, and for those of you who look at the other two segments, uh, what we'll quickly notice is it's it's less about let's just kill somebody with no save and let's wait for three months to do that. That's not what it's there for. Uh, the other segments include riders uh, that they inflict pain and disaster upon the target, and they let you know where the caster is. Uh or they, they make you aware, and then they make you aware of the direction. The, the point is that yeah. you have a full month uh, at the by the time the second segment is cast in which you automatically at, every, at all times know the direction and distance, roughly, to the caster. You also know the caster's name, and so you should be able in that month, hopefully, to be able to track them down and do something about it because you also know uh, that the only way to end the effects you're currently suffering, the the constant damage that you're receiving and the the daily ability score drain, uh, that is something that you can only get rid of by killing the caster, so you definitely have an incentive to do that. Yeah, so the spell looks like a way to just instantly kill somebody. What it actually is is a fantastic adventure hook for... You know, it's it's the ultimate assassination plot, basically. Uh, and of course, if you're in a position to sit in your in your citadel and ensure that no one can come take you down while you cast that spell for three months in a row, it is an okay way to kill somebody. But you need to have all of those set up in advance. And at that point, really, the addition or subtraction of this in particular spell isn't going to do that much good because if you can stay still for three months without anybody, be, without your target being able to do anything with to you chances are you could probably take them in a fight. Yeah. Uh, so while when you were DMing and your player shows up and says, hey, I want to use Advanced Arcana 2, and you're flipping through it to make sure it's okay, and you notice Sorbethal's Inevitable Doom, don't take the book away from him. Consider using it as a plot hook at high levels. It's not there to just murder your NPCs at a whim. Uh, at the same time, it should be said that, you know, if you, uh, if you do find your players... Uh, somehow abusing that that in particular spell, perhaps with some sort of fast time pocket plane. I don't think it actually works when it's cast on another plane, but I don't remember off the top of my head, so just in case. Uh, something like that, you know, maybe maybe bear in mind that if, if it's being used in ways that it's not intended, uh, obviously DM is the final arbiter of what does and doesn't work, when and where. Um, I've got one other spell that I, I wanted to talk to you about, and then Josh wanted to talk to you a little bit about the appendices, uh, which he was more heavily involved in. So the one last spell that I really wanted to talk about was one called Artisolf's Utility Translator. 
And this is one that I sort of feel like I have to explain. There was there was a there was a spell in the original Advanced Arcana called Eyelight, which uh, which I've always sort of felt I need to defend whenever it comes up because it's admittedly perhaps not the most powerful spell. Uh, Ordosoft's Utility Translator is another one that I just sort of feel uh, the need to explain a little bit when it comes up, and perhaps that means that it should have been cut, but I, I think it's. I think it's worthwhile. So I just wanted to explain. Artisoft's Utility Translator, for those of you who don't know, is a modal spell. Uh, it's first level. It gives you the option of either being able to speak any language and be understood when speaking that language, or it gives you the ability to understand the spoken words of the language, but it does not give you the ability to do both. And the reason for that, partially, is because I was a little bit strapped for abilities to uh, to, to really tie that modal stuff into for divination, but mostly it came about as a result of a game that I was playing shortly before I came up with the spell, uh, where I had actually prepared uh, Comprehend Languages, I believe, or maybe I hadn't prepared it, but whatever the case was, um, we were in a dungeon, and it was, it was, I believe it was for the beginning of the Age of Worms adventure path, for anyone who's familiar with that, and we came across an Earth Elemental, who popped up, and he suddenly began talking in Terran. And if you're like us, then everyone in your adventure, everyone in your party, they, they choose their, their bonus languages, and they all choose Draconic, because, of course, you know, everyone in the party is going to speak Draconic, and no NPCs ever speak Draconic, so it'll just be a perfect uh, party language, or whatever the case is. In any case, no one spoke Terran, and so he began talking for a bit, and I wanted to know what he was saying, but I had no way to find out, uh, and so uh, I was a little bit a little bit frustrated with that because then he attacked us. Uh, so I was sitting there thinking, you know, sometimes, uh, obviously, we didn't have access to, uh, to tongues. It was too low of a level. And so uh, I was thinking, you know, we, we wouldn't have been able to talk to him uh, back and forth uh, no matter pretty much what we did. But uh, it would have been fun, would have been nice, uh, maybe if I had a spell that, you know, sometimes you really you really just need to understand what they're saying. So maybe with this elemental, maybe all we needed to, was to understand. Other times, you really just need to, to be able to speak it. Sometimes you run across natives who speak a language you don't you don't know, and all you, they're more heavily armed than you, and all you really need to know how to say is, I surrender, I come in peace, please don't kill me. Uh, in other cases, when, uh, when the wall suddenly starts talking in a dead language, and you need to know what the hell the riddle is so you can get past the door, then maybe you want to know what it's saying, but you're less concerned about saying it back. So this is sort of a, a spell for early on in the campaign that allows you to have a lot of versatility and know to, to sort of deal with languages without having to have that that second level. or Is, is tongue second or third level? I think it's third level. Yeah, so that, that slightly higher level spell slot. That's what that's there for. Uh, and I just wanted to explain that for a sec. So, a lot of utility out of Artisol's Utility Translator. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about the appendixes. Uh, there are a lot of appendix or appendix material, not as much as the spells, mind you, but uh, you do get a number of other things useful for any uh, budding mage. You get a list of new familiars. We had a bunch of new familiars in the original Advanced Arcana, including a, uh, a bonsai tree, a walking corpse, and an animated object. Uh, so when we came time for the new one, I figured we should have more. So this time around, you can choose from slimes, swarms, and even goldfish. So you get more crazy familiar options. And uh, we, we've done a bit of work to make sure that they come out uh, as, as best as they possibly can in the most 
unique and interesting way. I've got to say that uh, while the bonsai was previously my favorite familiar, probably by far, just for the cool factor of having a bonsai, I'm now seriously considering the possibility of getting a goldfish familiar just because of the images that that evokes. Yeah, uh, definitely for the uh, for the eccentric mage, the uh, the goldfish is uh, is the ideal choice. Uh, we've also, for those of you with a more um, standard mindset, uh, we we finally have a dog familiar. Uh, I was I was a little bit shocked to discover that 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 there wasn't one. So now there is. And don't forget that uh, you also included you had a pixie and a and a dragon like thing, didn't you? Yeah. So for uh, for those of you who want to run around with a small fey like creature but didn't want to take improved familiar to get a real pixie, uh, you can run around with you know everybody's real image of a uh, of a small fey, uh, something that that has a lot of personality and charm. And and for those of you missing fairy dragons, we have a uh, we have a standard non-improved version of a small dragon-like creature as well, which uh, which I think would be quite entertaining uh, to be running around with as a mage, to say the least. It was certainly uh, it was certainly a pain before when uh, when you had to take something like uh, improved familiar and, and sink that feed into it just because you you liked the image of running around with a small dragon or a small pixie sort of thing, even if you weren't really interested in the stats for a pseudo-dragon, which, frankly, aren't that great anyway. Yeah, I mean, a pseudo-dragon familiar is not exactly going to be winning you any fights. Uh, so we, we definitely, we've, we've taken steps to fulfill the aesthetic there, and we've included uh, descriptions of their personalities and things so that uh, you have some general guidelines for making your familiar a character uh, for your wizard and not just a uh, sort of forget-about-me-and-put-me-in-the-pack stat block. Uh, in addition to uh, to new familiars, we have new arcane bonds that are that are separate from familiars and the bonded item. These include elemental bonds, which allow you to bond with one of the four traditional fantasy elements: fire, air, earth, and water, uh, and provide a uh, provide a number of benefits. Uh, you'll have to buy the book, of course, to find out exactly what they are. But uh, but I, I assure you that they are themed to. Uh, to really invoke those images, one where you uh, you bind with one of the spirits of the dead. Uh, this is notably different from having an animated skeleton familiar, uh, or from being an oracle with the uh, bothered by spirits curse. Uh, I think that uh, that you'll find that that is uh, that it's going to be quite a bit more rewarding. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's there's definitely something to be said for uh, for what what do those spirits do? They make it difficult to draw items, and occasionally when you drop stuff, it flies ten feet away, five feet. And uh, <laughs> but uh, but you you must remember that uh, that in our uh, in our book about oracles, we we do make some effort to improve the experience. Uh, I'm not uh, I'm not actually sure that they're they're going to know about that book yet, Josh, as that's uh, that's coming out sometime in the future. Uh, that that book's not going to be available at the time this podcast goes out. But uh, look for that. Yeah, something to look forward to. Improved oracles. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah, uh, and then we have a uh, we finally we have a bond for spell books, uh, the wizard's ultimate tool. Speaking of the wizard's ultimate tool, the uh, the last section or no, the second to last section, rather, in the appendix is new spellbook materials, which uh, which include enchantments for your spellbook, things to make the pages out of, things to make the bindings out of, enough stuff to make your uh, your book a part of your character and, uh, and not just a thing to prepare spells out of in the morning. Uh, now, 
it bears mention with this that uh, that while it definitely gives you, it, it does go over lots of different materials, and there's there's definitely a certain pimping it out factor as far as having uh, having a, a spell book that's got unique materials and sort of feels cool and eldritch and as a as an extension of your wizard's character. Uh, it also provides mechanical benefits uh, to each of those each of those different kinds of covers and pages and uh, and most importantly the inks which uh, which I'll let Josh tell you a little bit more about. Yeah, so the book does uh, present a number of new inks which you can uh, you can pen your spells in when you write them into your book. And the inks allow that spell whenever you prepare it to uh, to come with an additional enhancement whether that's meta magic or some uh, some more unique enchantment uh, depends on the exact ink used. But it really gives you a sort of... It, it adds to the experience of writing new spells in your book. And uh, if you picked uh, tattoos or whatever, uh, you know, you can still uh, you can still ink those in in something special. Uh, I do want to point out, those of you DMs out there who may be, uh, who may be concerned about the idea of uh, buying one set of ink and then having free metamagic on lots of spells... Uh, we did bear that in mind uh, when you uh, when we were pricing those. They are uh, they are going to be costed appropriately. They cost more the higher level spell it is, and they're they're costed with the idea that yes, this is this is very powerful, if not more powerful than a uh, than a metamagic rod of the appropriate level. That's they're, they're pretty out there. So the uh, the powerful ones definitely have that price. But the cool thing about these is they really let you customize your spells. So again, if the book is all about having spells be cast in different ways, uh, now you actually have a reason why you might want to record Magic Missile in your spell book three or four or maybe even five different times just so you can get that extra free effect uh, that each of those different inks give. And that, that, I think, is one of the cool things about that. Yeah, uh, you definitely get a lot of mileage out of inks and, uh, and new pages and things. Uh, the, finally, in the appendices, there's new additional material components. You can add to the casting of any spell. Uh, well, depending on the component and example, there are some restrictions as, as laid out there. But uh, basically the idea here is you can spend a little bit of extra gold when you cast the spell, and you can get a bonus effect, a rider, uh, and uh, the, the idea here is that by expending ritual components, you can accomplish cooler effects. And you, you oftentimes see that in, uh, in fantasy media, that a spell is more effective when you consume the, uh, the dragon's blood or what have you beforehand. Uh, naturally, that's, uh, that's not something that's completely new. We've seen some of that before in some uh, old Wizards products, Book of Vile Darkness... Uh, Though now you don't need to get quite so sadistic and hedonistic in order to use that in particular option for, for extra spell oomph out of material components. Yeah, in fact, most of these are, uh, are, are more in line with the, uh, the family uh, sort, of, uh, sort of gaming group. There's no um, mature content warnings that, uh, that you need to ignore when purchasing the product. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, now we're on to our uh, on to our next segment, game mastery, which is devoted to uh, to improving your game experience and providing you tips for actually playing at the table. Uh, this week's topic is the place you game. That's right. We're talking about your lair, your basement, or or what have you, uh, and what sorts of things you want to see there. We have a uh, we have a list. 
the uh, the top five most important things that your your location should have, and then five places you should go when you uh, you can't game there for whatever reason. Uh, so first thing and, uh, and most foremost is privacy. Your uh, your group needs to be able to game in peace because your annoying roommate coming over and bugging you for chips every five minutes really hurts the ambiance. And a bunch of people walking over to you and being all, "Oh hi, what are you doing?" is uh, it really interrupts the flow of games. Uh, secondly, we'll be discussing table space. You uh, obviously, if you game regularly you know that you need enough table space for your group to sit with their character sheets, preferably not on top of one another. Uh, if you do a lot of combats at your table and your system, like Pathfinder or especially 4th edition D&D, really requires a, uh, a mat to you know, have uh, to represent the battlefield, you need to make sure that there's room for that to be out completely unobstructed and you'll need places, obviously, to store your mini box and all the dice and pencils. You'll want space for, you know, all the sodas and things to pile up. And uh, just preserve your table space as much as possible. Uh, I'm sure that there are home decoration shows that can give you uh, good advice for maximizing your available table space. Uh, long, round tables are generally better than narrow ones because you want to make sure that you can get people close enough together that they can easily hear one another. Um, yes. So the next thing we want to talk about is making sure that you have space for the people, not just on the table. Uh, and you want to make sure that there's good seating for everyone because uh, one of my uh, my earlier gaming experiences, we, uh, we all gamed on these great comfortable couches, which were nice. They were very comfortable. Uh, unfortunately, no one really wanted to do that much gaming. We just wanted to sort of lounge on the couch, and the later the night got, we uh, we sort of went to sleep. So you want to aim for chairs as opposed to sofas here, probably, and uh, and go for something that sits people at the table. All right, uh, next, number, uh, number four is going to be lighting, and uh, you want to make sure that your lighting is good enough for people to see by. I have gamed in rooms where we've shut off all the lights and tried to uh, tried to read sheets by cell phone light, and it just does not work very well. Uh, especially if you have multicolored dice that are difficult to read, they're almost impossible to read in the dark. Uh, so adequate lighting is important, but uh, but if you can get it, go for adjustable lighting or uh, or dimming. Even if you don't have one of those neat little dials, a dimmer switch, you know, get some lamps so that you can dim the room or brighten it as the mood strikes you for grimmer scenes or happy scenes. It's, uh, it can really just affect the overall absorption of the game. Uh, next, uh, number thing number five, the, uh, the least important, but still something you should be aiming for in your gaming layer, is, uh, is sound. You want a good sound system. Uh, your laptop speaker is bad, generally speaking for if you want to play music or have sound effects. Uh, and uh, you want to opt for surround sound is good or just a speaker. But if, if you find yourself going, who's got the loudest headphones so I can set them down on the table, it's probably best to just skip uh, sound. So uh, that's, the, uh, that's the ideal layer. But unfortunately... 
your family's coming in this weekend and they need the basement or you've uh yet you can't stay at home because you just got evicted or your noisy roommates throwing a crazy party or you know what whatever it is that keeps you from gaming at home maybe it's too far away from where most of the group lives uh we we do have some suggestions for uh for places you can go and game instead uh so our first suggestion and uh probably our number one choice this is something i've actually i actually did quite a lot of when uh when first starting off playing uh d and d is if you if you have nowhere to go check out your local fast food place they have big tables uh booths that offer reasonable privacy they have food there so you don't need to bring snacks uh and generally they have refillable sodas which is again fantastic if you're going to be there a long time uh there there are some downsides to uh to eat at gaming at the fast food place you probably will have somebody at some point come over and bug you uh and some people in your group unless they're all very uh very unabashed people will start feeling kind of uh kind of bad that they're just sort of sitting there leeching free sodas for 6 7 hours uh and depending on the uh restaurant in uh, in question they may ask you to leave so be sure to choose some place that is uh that that is not got no loitering signs posted uh so if you don't like fast food uh you could try a nicer restaurant uh they may have private booths or uh, or outside areas so some place with more privacy uh the food is better but more expensive so depending on the uh on your level of trade off there and uh and if you're a group that drinks while you play most of these restaurants have bars uh okay so restaurants not for you for whatever reason you don't like food you wanted to bring your own you know whatever uh you should try a local library a conference room some place at your work or if your school has an after has a club activity room some place on use like that it's a public space that's good for uh that's generally used for conferencing that sort of thing these places are extremely private uh you will not get bugged in these places most of the time uh that there are obvious downsides here you have to bring your own food the place in question might not allow outside food and drink to come in and you might feel kind of awkward being at your uh at your office or whatever sitting around with a uh, rolling dice all day. Um next up, you could always try your local gaming store. A lot of groups game at gaming stores. Uh I've never really tried it, but it is uh it is definitely something to consider. There's generally these places have rooms for uh for groups to get together so you have your assured privacy. They usually don't mind if you want to bring in a load of Cheetos or whatever. A lot of gaming stores do sell food and beverages for when you run out. They will be selling all the uh, all the extra equipment, dice and things that you need. Um and that they're, they're going to be the most likely of these uh, these places to be able to accommodate your regular gaming needs. There are some downsides uh as as with any of these places really. At the local gaming store, you may have to rent the room or you may have to arrange for time. So that could get expensive or it could just cut your schedule short. Uh you're probably going to have to play around people's uh you know warhammer hobbies uh and tournaments like that but you know you do have uh you do have the added advantage of uh of meeting like-minded individuals and you can maybe even add to your group or uh, or post for new members uh if you still don't have any place you don't like gaming stores whatever the guy creeps you out you can always go to the park uh this is a place where you can bring a cooler with all kinds of snacks 
They tend to have tables. Some parks have their tables under cover, so the weather's not necessarily a concern. Uh, except that when it's cold out, it's going to be cold. Uh, there's not a lot you can do about that. So if you live in Southern California, you might consider it. Uh, but, uh, but it probably wouldn't be my, uh, my first choice. But if you, if you have a, uh, if you have a large group, uh, you could, uh, you could probably accommodate the, uh, the space nicely. But, uh, you may also need to, uh, to bring a, a surface to play on because you might not be able to fit the, uh, picnic table. Uh, finally, if you don't like the, uh, the park, you can't go to the gaming store, you think there's no conference rooms around, and you hate food, and you can't game at home, you can always game online. There's a lot of forums and things that are dedicated to this, and you can even play massively multiplayer online games. If, uh, if that strikes you there, if you're good at that sort of thing, you can create a server and, and do most of the things you would want to do at the table. There's, there's obviously some disadvantages. You're not really near your friends. Uh, chat has never really been a very good way to express, uh, express complicated ideas. Uh, and, uh, and again, the, the platform you're using probably won't support everything you want to do. Uh, on the bright side, you know, you can use your own refrigerator or whatever for your food and drinks. Alrighty, so now that we've got that out of the way, and uh, thank you, Josh, for that that insightful commentary into uh, the places we game. Uh, now we're going to do our final segment for today, something called Seed to Story, which is where we are going to right now. I'm I've got dice in my hand. I'm about to roll them. We're about to roll a die percent, and we're going to consult the 100 Adventure Ideas table in the Dungeon Master's Guide. For uh, for third edition, I think I just have third. Yeah, it's not 3.5. Third edition, I think the table's the same, but whatever, whatever the case. In any case, uh, what we do here is we're gonna get a small adventure seed, just a few words, uh, and then Josh and I here, in sort of a uh, sort of an homage to grave plots, is we're going to expand on that seed on the spot without knowing in advance what it is. Uh, we're gonna sort of plan out a little bit of an adventure for what that could be. Uh, right now, like I said, we're using that table. In the future, we hope to get some ideas from some of you guys. Uh, as far as some of these things go, we're going to put them in a hat and we'll uh, we'll draw those, or maybe, maybe we'll make a table because that just seems more appropriate. Whatever the case, uh, I'm going to go ahead and roll now, and it looks like what we have is... One. 91. 91. An absent-minded wizard lets her wad of wonder fall into the wrong hands. Now, the first thing that I think of when I hear about the rod of wonder falling into the wrong hands is a friend of ours by the name of Joel, uh, who, well, let's just say that if the rod of wonder was made for anybody, it was made for Joel. Yeah, his uh, his personality is uh, is pretty well suited to... Wah! Oh, hey, look, a cloud of butterflies, and wah, look, I'm green forever. So something like the Rod of Wonder, that is obviously not going to be... The wrong hands there is not some sort of evil mastermind who's going to be able to use it in his carefully well-laid plans. This is something that's falling into someone who's probably not even a real villain. He's just he's just kind of a crazy, perhaps drunken or mad... I like Goofy Faye, personally. Uh... You you would like Goofy Faye, <laughs> but uh but but drunken and mad is good too if you want a uh, if you want a more 
cosmopolitan feel, but I think a, I think a fae is more likely to be able to cause real problems. Why don't we uh, Why don't we split the difference? You like uh, You like fae, and I like mad. Why don't we try something like uh, Why don't we try something like a demon? They're uh, They're equally chaotic, uh, perhaps mischievous. Why don't, why don't we put it in the hands of a quasit? Or uh, or something to that effect. Quasit also is probably going to be about the right CR for people who are worried about the Rod of Wonder as a major threat. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, though I might raise you imp over Quasit. I know they're less chaotic and therefore less mad, but they are more likely to be causing problems with a Rod of Wonder. I think. Well, they're a lot more likely to be mischievous in in most media. Technically, in D&D, they're probably not going to fall into that category, but fine, okay, we'll, we'll go Imp. Maybe he's, uh, maybe the Imp is selling, uh, selling hits on the Rod of Wonder, 1GP, see what happens. Ooh, that's not, uh, that's not terrible, and, uh, all of a sudden, PCs enter the town, everybody's green, orange, or dead from being pelted with gems, and, uh, and, uh, on top of that, the, uh, the houses have all turned into living, breathing monsters, or, uh, or the grass, isn't there one, like, the grass grows to ten feet tall for yeah. no reason? Uh, there, there is a lot of things like that, but what really complicates things here is the, uh, the wizard to whom the, uh, the Rod of Wonder belongs to has... Oh. Sorry. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps the wizard is the uh, perhaps the the imp is a familiar for that wizard. I'm thinking perhaps the imp is a familiar for a more innocent wizard, and has tricked the uh, the original wizard into believing that that person is is in fact selling hits on her rod of wonder, and that 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 she is coming to uh, to slay this relatively innocent person. Oh, I see. And now the PCs need to protect this uh, this unimposing wizard from the uh, from the true owner of the rod. Indeed, and uh, at, at the same time, uh, they, uh, they they need to f- uncover the mystery of wh- where the rod went, who's dealing with it, because obviously, uh, you know that, that the imp's not going to just have it there for them to bash him over the head. Okay, well, th- well, that's good because I was worried when you started with that. I thought you were going to tell me that the orange people weren't going to be able to tell them to right where the imp is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, all right. So that that sounds more or less uh, like a good start. For where we're going, we need. Uh, we obviously we, we're going to need some encounters. They're they're going to have to stop the uh, the lady from waxing the uh, the innocent wizard. And in order to do that, they're going to need to find some way to prove that the wizard wasn't involved, which may become difficult if uh, it was her familiar doing the deed. Obviously, you could make slurs against devils and uh, see if it sticks, but that seems a little simple. Where uh, where where can we give them a solution on this that has some sort of problem to it? Okay. Well, well, maybe maybe that's not quite what the problem is. Maybe the uh, maybe the the younger wizard is is or maybe the older wizard is perfectly happy to accept that the younger wizard is innocent. Or maybe the maybe the younger wizard actually did steal the rod. They just didn't know what they were going to be doing. Or they didn't intend to do anything with it. Then the imp got their hands on it. Maybe all the older wizard wants really is for his rod to be returned. And otherwise, that wizard is the younger one is going to face the consequence. So maybe maybe it's really about tracking down the rod. Uh, if if exonerating the younger wizard is going to be too difficult to turn into an encounter, right? Well, I figure how it's going to break down is is the woman will show up all wrathful and uh, and angry at the younger wizard. The PCs will have to intervene to uh, to spare the younger person's life, at least for a little bit. So you get a you get an early combat encounter that hopefully doesn't end lethally. Maybe after a round or two, they all sort of go, wait, what's going on here? 
Uh, at that point, the uh, the lady explains that her rod was stolen by this man, or whatever, and that uh, that unless it's returned to her, dire things will happen. Uh, of course, the PCs will at this point have already seen the dire things as the town in question is slowly being transformed into pandemonium. Yeah, and uh, the the added uh, threat of burning it to the ground uh, will, will likely provide any additional motivation they might need. Uh, so anyway, so they gotta go now. They gotta go find the uh, find the rod, which the uh, the imp is squared away somewhere. Uh, or maybe they just need to find the imp. I mean, after all, imps are not exactly easy to find when they don't want to be. They can be invisible all the time. They're quite small. Uh, I don't know if the Pathfinder ones are still able to, but I know that the uh, the three point five ones at least could actually transform into humanoid form, I believe, and certainly into animal form of various yeah. kinds. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't really want to give them an impossible task and a uh, and an invisible imp that can turn into an animal and uh, and dive into the woods or whatever is going to be uh, going to be quite a challenge for for PCs who need to be worrying about a CR three encounter. Well, that's true, though. Realistically, uh, again, with something like a rod of wonder, the CR is almost certainly going to be going up a little bit. We could give the imp a couple of maybe bard or rogue levels as well. Makes a little bit of sense. Uh, and then maybe, especially if he's hanging around the town in disguise, obviously he's uh, obviously he's enjoying the chaos he's reaping. Ironic as that may be from an imp, uh, he's enjoying that, and so he wants to stick around and see how it turns out. I don't think he's going to suddenly disappear. Perhaps he's uh, perhaps he's vain, like a lot of devils. Maybe he thinks yeah. they won't see through his disguise, and they just need to piece together the clues. Yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. Uh, so. They uh, they find out from the younger wizard that the imp has the rod, or whatever, and then they need to uh, to set out on finding him, which is probably going to involve what interviewing some of the townsfolk, finding out who used the rod and where they got it. Of course, along the way there will probably all be all sorts of chaotic events that they can need to immediately put right. Maybe there's a house cat that's grown to uh, to gigantic proportions that needs to either be reduced and captured or slain before it kills more townsfolk. Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously with a rod of wonder, I mean, they might have to be hacking their way through a huge grove of grass and uh, and, and dodging, falling, uh, fall, I mean, you know, all kinds of craziness, really, but... Uh, Especially, you can uh, you can probably go ahead and add in uh, as a DM. You can probably feel free to add in all sorts of other crazy effects that the rod technically can't do, but will make for fun and interesting encounters. Uh, for example, I seriously doubt that the rod can make house cats grow to the size of war elephants, but I think that would make for a fun encounter. Yeah, yeah, that does seem uh, that does seem like something you could definitely manage. Particularly if you're not uh, not planning on letting the PCs hold on to the rod. Uh, at the end of the adventure so that they start running around being like, why won't it make house cats grow to tremendous size? Well, I mean, you know, honestly, uh, with, with something like the Rod of Wonder, I imagine that uh, I imagine that your PCs are probably going to implode themselves long before <laughs> they reach the point where they have exhausted the Rod's potential abilities. Yeah, could be. Um, certainly... At the end of the day, they uh, that they should track down the the imp in disguise or whatever, and uh, and either have to fight him or convince him to give up the rod. 
That's true. It's possible that the uh, that the actual solution, once they find the imp, may be as simple as uh, as paying him for the uh, for the hit on the wand, and then insisting that they uh, they be able to wield it themselves, and then running off with it after lying to the devil. Of course, that could just become a uh, a hook for a later adventure, as uh, devils are not well known for their happiness when uh, when cheated in various deals. Uh, that's a good point, and uh, and imps with character levels could uh, could very easily become a, a persistent issue for PCs, particularly imps that can be invisible and sell secrets to their enemies or uh, or do other things that they need to be dealt with at some point. There's really no limit to the sorts of things that imps can do. In any case, I think that we've got a, a pretty good outline there. Obviously, uh, with something like the Rod of Wonder, you'd probably need to fill in your own favorite uh, random encounters as far as what kind of chaos that's sown in its wake. Uh, but I, I think that the idea of following this trail of uh, of strange happenings to the uh, to the imp before he does some sort of horrible harm or before the wizard levels the town in order to stop this chaos from spreading uh, definitely a, a starting place for an adventure if I ever heard one. Yeah, uh, though of course if you uh, if you decided not to make it into an adventure. You could probably have a fairly uh, fairly fun in-town encounter by simply having someone offering the PCs a hit on a Rod of Wonder. Uh, now that sounds like about the second best way to derail a campaign after <laughs> allowing them to take hits off a deck of many things. Uh, that said, uh, I think we've about finished our seed to story, so there's one last thing we're going to hit this week, and that is our poll of the week. Uh, so, obviously... Uh, as you may imply from the name, this is a poll. We're going to ask you a question, and then we're hoping that you will get back to us in, either via email. You can reach me at A-R-I-G-G-S at necromancers-online.com. That's A-Riggs at necromancers-online.com. And then Josh can be reached at J-Zabak, Z-A-B-A-C-K, at necromancers-online.com. Uh, or if you uh, if you don't feel like emailing us, if you you want to make sure that your word is heard by the entire internet, why don't you go ahead and, and send your response over to our forum uh, on our necromancersonline.com website where we'll, uh, we'll also be looking to hear back from you. So, what is the poll this week? It is a simple question about how you game. How do you generate your ability scores? When you're going to make a character, do you roll 4 die 6, drop the lowest for all of your abilities in order? Do you roll a bunch of dice and decide how they go. Do you maybe go with point by? And if so, what uh, what system do you use for that? Do you use the Pathfinder? Do you use the, uh, the old 3.5? Or maybe, just maybe, you've spent a little bit of time taking a look at our Book of Beginnings, a free download available on our website. Again, www.necromancers-online.com uh, where you can, you can download that. That actually has a number of other uh, ways of character creation. We just want to know uh, from our readers what... Uh, what sort of ways that you go about doing that. So definitely don't hesitate to uh, get in touch with us in one way or another. Alrighty, so this has been the very first ever Necromancers of the Northwest podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it, and I just want to say before we go, thank you very much for listening. Josh? Yeah, thanks for joining us. We hope to see you back next week. Alrighty, bye-bye.